You're listening to What's Wrong With This Picture? Freaky films and why we frickin' love them. Hi, I'm Lindsay McCullough. And I'm Gary Mulholland. And in each episode of What's Wrong With This Picture, we'll be looking at a movie we think is weird and wonderful. We sometimes do include the endings where it's key to what the film is, so please be prepared for that. So anyway, buckle up and join us on a journey to dangerous cities, suburbia and other fantasy worlds. It's going to be a wild ride. Today's episode of What's Wrong With This Picture is called Clint East Weird. Um, the ultimate conservative but respected mainstream figure um, has made some very weird movies in his time. Um, Clint Eastwood, of course. Um, we're going to be looking specifically at High Plains Drifter, a Western from 1973, and a Civil War drama, um, The Beguiled from 1971. Lindsay, who's it all about? We're going to start off with High Plains Drifter. As Gary says, it's a Western from 1973 and it was directed by Clint Eastwood himself and it was the first Western he directed. It stars Clint Eastwood as The Stranger, Mariana Hill as Callie, Verna Bloom as Sarah, Billy Curtis as Mordecai and Jeffrey Lewis as Stacey Bridges, The Baddie. Gary, what's it all about? Well, I'm going to keep this plot short and sweet because it's basically High Noon meets The Seven Samurai or The Magnificent Seven, uh, if you've never seen uh, Kurosawa's Japanese original. Uh, a man walks, a mysterious man, uh, rides into a West, small western town. Uh, this western town is corrupt and uh, full of cowardly people and uh, they hire him to fight off some bad guys Except, of course, he actually wants revenge for something at the same time. Um, he, of course, wins. And I'm not going to say, oh, no, apologise for a spoiler. Mm. Because from the very moment you start watching this film, you know Clint Eastwood is going to win. It's how he wins and why and what happens in between that makes it interesting. So, Lindsay, what's weird and what's wrong with this picture? I think in some ways it's very, very similar to his, his other Westerns. I mean, in, actually, it's practically identical to Pale Rider, which would come along later on. But, you know, we've seen Clint by 1973. We've seen Clint often as the mysterious stranger, the man with no name. And in this one, he is only called the stranger. Uh, there's hints that he is um, a person uh, called Duncan. Um, but yeah, we'll come into that. I guess what's weird about it, and maybe this one's a massive spoiler. So we've seen other films like it. But in this one, he's a ghost. Yeah, I, I I mean, this is the implication of the whole film. And and in fact, Lindsay, you were saying to me at one point that um, the original story, mm -hmm. um, it was actually made very clear that, that, that the person who had been wronged um, and that uh, Clint Eastwood was made, you know, sort of uh, going to be taking revenge on was his own brother. Yeah. Um, and that, that was deliberately left out of the script um, because he wanted to make it more like this was a mystical, supernatural being yeah. rather than just a person. Yeah, exactly. And so there are lots of hints throughout. So at one point, a person says to him, uh, the dead won't rest without an, a name, without a marker of their name. And the, um, the, the person, Duncan, that these terrible things have happened to, basically, he was killed, we see in a flashback. He was killed by three desperados, including Stacey, who's the baddie. But the whole of this town 
stood by and let it happen. Mm. And I've read that um, the initial script was inspired by, uh, do you know the story of Kitty Genovese in New York? No, this was I in don't. the 60s. So this was a woman who was killed in a, in a kind of New York tenement block, much like you would see in kind of Rear Window, that kind of thing. Mm. She was killed in the courtyard. And the initial story was that 30 or 40 neighbours kind of witnessed this from their windows, from the terrace, wow. and that nobody did anything. I mean, that story was, was actually later debunked yeah, that actually yeah. very, very many fewer people had seen it and that somebody did actually call the police. But it's it's been this kind of um, anecdotal story for a while that Kitty Genovese was murdered and people let her let her be murdered. So this, <coughs> excuse me, the script was um, uh, kind of based on, on that story. So yeah, the idea is that, that the marshal of the town, Marshal Duncan, because he's poked his nose into local affairs and mines and there's corruption and you know what, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But he gets, <laughs> no. he gets... Brutally killed by mm. three men. With, Bull whipped to death. Yeah. Um, and the town basically stand by and let this happen. So when he rides into town, the town, uh, those three guys are now kind of released from jail. They're coming back to the town for some reason. Again, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But the town not connecting uh, the stranger, Clint Eastwood's character, with the marshal that we see has been killed decide to hire him to protect the town. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that makes it such a strange film. So you get these flashbacks, uh, don't you, uh, of um, Duncan being murdered. Uh, and again, you know, it's this very brutal and strange sadomasochistic killing, which is just mm -hmm. whipping a guy to death rather than, you know, somebody just coming out and shooting him. And um, uh, the person who you, you're seeing being, it's shot very cleverly. So you don't necessarily see exactly who it is and sometimes it definitely appears to be clint eastwood himself and sometimes um as you were talking about mm -hmm. Lindsay, it looks like the stuntman the regular stuntman that he used yeah basically so it's, it's buddy van horn uh i, rem I remember his name buddy Brilliant van man. horn so he was uh Clint's regular stunt double in, in many films and and in the long shots it's buddy van horn who's being uh bullwhipped Close-ups, it's obviously Clint Eastwood. So, yeah, the the film initially, as you say, the script was, this was Clint's brother and he's mm. come as a brother for revenge. In the film, Clint Eastwood very much wanted to make it much more mysterious and so the hint is that it was Clint Eastwood himself who was killed and now he's back as a ghost for revenge and mayhem. Absolutely. But, and, but the thing that is most kind of throws a curveball into that is that Nobody in this town, uh, yeah. uh, or the 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 bad guys, they spend the whole film going, "Who are you? <laughs> yeah, who are you?" <laughs> <laughs> to which Clint replies, "I didn't say." Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, or shoots one of them. Yeah, and um, <laughs> or shoots three of them. Or shoots the three or four of them. Um, uh, yeah. So um, he, so on the one hand, the flashbacks are saying, "Oh yeah, no, this is this is." Clint Eastwood's character, yeah, you know, who's come back. On the the other hand, the characters reacting to him like they've never seen him before. Yeah. So um, uh, that is what gives it this mystical quality, along with possibly that. And this seems ridiculous in in a film that my favourite scene should be maybe the very beginning and the very end, where he rides into town through a heat haze, yeah, in a, in a desert and a graveyard. And rides out of town um, through that same heat haze, and it's the most. They're the two most memorable scenes to me because I remember even as a kid watching it, and I must have been, I was too young to have seen it because it's brutal. Um, but um, it, probably fourteen or something. I just remember being mesmerised by 
the, the whole kind of like the heat haze and everything. And, yeah. And then as the film got into it and we got to things like, you know, Welcome to Hell, which we'll probably yeah. come to, um, it, it, I, it suddenly really hit me. I'm watching a film about a ghost. And I think that's another thing that makes it weird because this is a guy who's been in many westerns, you know, started his career in Rawhide, a TV western, obviously did the uh, Sergio, Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns. Um, and the first western he decides to direct, he kind of veers from that, this is just a straight western, to something that is kind of mystical, that, that yeah. he, he very yeah. deliberately takes that takes that tack. But I, I wonder about westerns because they're so... In some ways, if I say formulaic, I don't even mean it in a bad way. You know, mm, there's, the, mm. there's there's set iconography, there's mm. set plots, there's set uh, kind of the way towns look or the, the way mm. that deserts look. Any slight variation that you do on a Western, mm. suddenly it's veered massively yeah. because we expect to see these things. Yeah. Um, and so in, I think it's a really interesting first Western for him to direct. Yeah. And I think I read that um, he was a big fan of, of John Wayne and he wrote to John Wayne after this film had come out and said, love to make a Western with you. And John Wayne was like, no thanks, you spoiled everything. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I, apparently John Wayne, yeah, I read that, that he wrote him some letter, which basically was, the gist of it was, um, you know, the old West was a great and noble place, and you, your your terrible film has just made it all dark and brutal, and implied that you know all Americans were scum or whatever. And according to legend, but I think there's a lot of apocrypha uh, around Clint Eastwood. Um, Clint Eastwood responded, "It wasn't about the old West." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a fair point. And and it's true. It's it's quite plainly he's quite plainly used. A Western setting, and particularly a very much of a Sergio Leone spaghetti Western type setting, crossed with the small town of High Noon and Bad Day at Black Rock and mm. those kind of movies, um, to talk about something to do with political corruption. Now, I'm not saying that this is a perfectly realised thought by him and uh, yeah. you know his his mentor Don Siegel, and it was perfectly kind of you know, honed and therefore we're now going to talk at large about, you know, 70s political corruption yeah. and Watergate and Nixon and uh, I don't know, whatever Clint Eastwood was into at the time because he was much more of a conservative, of course, than a Democrat. And, you know, 50 years later, he's campaigning for Trump. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he was a Republican mayor of yeah, Carmel at yeah, one point, yeah. a small town where he, he bases himself. So he's not, you know, a liberal or whatever. Um, however, um, there is something in High Plains Drifter which is plainly not about the moors of the Old West. No, absolutely. And... and and yeah, you're right. A lot of seventies films, film seventies genre films, whether they were sci-fi or whether they were uh, um, westerns or horror, uh, yeah. uh, they were all about kind of what was going on in the seventies. And and you're right. On in, in this one, he is kind of on the side of the underdog. So mm. Mordecai, who's mm. played by uh, Billy Curtis, is a little person. So he's very much he kind of supports and promotes uh, Mordecai who's being bullied he's very much on the side of Native Americans who are mm -hmm. being kind of treated racistly although you know mm. in, in one scene he gives them some blankets basically yeah, the, town, yeah, yeah. the town are so keen for him a man of his prowess because he's killed three guys already to, to, to kind of protect them from th these three returning outlaws that they say to him he can have anything so I would say he's kind of on the side of the underdog except when it comes to women because Excellent. he just rapes them yeah. So we've got three deaths in the first five minutes and the first rape about three minutes after that. 
Yeah, and um, you can't talk about what's wrong with this picture without talking about the sexual politics. Um, this is definitely a film of its time, and I kind of feel, yeah, Lindsay, what, you know, what did you want to say about the early scenes? Well, I, I just... Um... I mean, in fact, it's not just the early scene, is it? No, it's a I mean, contempt he, for women throughout. It, yeah, there are there are two female characters, and and one is, um, I mean, she may be the kind of saloon girl or something, but she certainly kind of earns her protection through through sex, and she uh, moves from kind of man to man to man to man. And but you know, what other choices does she have? This is what she's got. This is how she might keep herself safe. So you know, she he he rapes her pretty immediately. She kind of coquettishly bumps into him and then starts a a fake flirty argument. And he takes her into a barn and rapes her. Of course, she loves it because this is the seventies. So it's it's kind of like, yeah, I could blame Clint Eastwood for that. I could blame this the the uh, scriptwriter for that. But it's the seventies. It's it's all through yeah. the lens of the seventies, isn't it? Yeah. There's two things that really hit me about it watching it this time round. Uh, one is. Why did Sam Peckinpah get so much criticism for the rape scene in Straw Dogs and yet I didn't hear much of a word and I haven't heard much of a word in history about the rape scene in High Plains Drift. Mm. It's kind of like there's at least some open to interpretation in Straw Dogs about whether Susan, the Susan George character liked it or not. Uh, there's no, there's nothing open to interpretation and one of the things about this scene is is that it's almost presented as if for for a man like Clint Eastwood's character, casual rape is sort of just fun, just sort of you know what you do when you walk into town. Yeah, and it, it is it is presented quite comedically, and Mordecai almost. says to him definitely. Mordecai says to no, he says to Mordecai later on because this um, woman, what's her name, Callie, mm. the next day. He's having a bath and she shoots, uh, she comes in and tries to shoot him. But of course, mm. you know, she's a girl and she throws like a girl and she shoots like a girl. Yeah. So mm. although he's sitting mm. in a bath three feet away from her, she can't hit the side of a barn door, even yeah. from that distance. And uh, the stranger says to Mordecai, why is she so mad only now? And Mordecai says, because you didn't go back for more. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's only presented uh, comedically. Uh, yeah. And then later on, of course, towards the end, there's another woman who is um, called Sarah, and she's the wife of the hotel owner. Yeah. And various damage is done to the hotel in a, in a, in a shoot-up later on. And again, he takes her into her own bedroom, which is the only remaining bedroom. And at first she fights him off, but then, of course, you know, her hair tumbles down <laughs> and she loves it as well. So, you know, even though he's a ghost, he's got this magic cock that, mm. that has... You know, lasted yay unto the afterlife. So good for him, I guess. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, two other things that I guess hit me about it. Um, we'll obviously we're going to be doing more about the beguiled and how different the male character is and how different the whole film is framed to High Plains Drifter in terms of women and men. But his first, Clint Eastwood's first direct movie that he directed was only in 1971, the same year, astonishingly, that he made also made The Beguiled and Dirty Harry. Oh, yeah, of course. All in the same year. Um, his first directorial effort. And it's basically the father or mother or parent of Fatal Attraction. And where, you know, uh, he's... He, 
you know, he sleeps with someone and she basically stalks him and becomes, it's almost like a horror movie. She is, oh, play Misty for me. Play Misty for me. Oh, what yeah. did I say? I don't think you mentioned that, that, that that's what we were talking about. Oh, right. Okay. Sorry. So play Misty for me. Yes. So it's almost a dry run for Fatal Attraction. He's a completely emasculated male character in a lot of ways who is bullied by, a, mm. you know, a lone woman who is almost like a proto slasher. And to go from, and, but the thing is, is that Play Misty for Me and The Beguiled were not successful. Mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood had already started to establish himself as a macho action hero in Rawhide TV series and then in the Spaghetti Westerns. Mm-hmm. He'd come out of the Spaghetti Westerns, he'd done a couple of movies, they were quite tough guy-ish. It all, you know, that was the way that his early fans wanted to go. He presented this other version of masculinity and him in particular and audiences didn't like mm. it and critics weren't too crazy about it either mm. um, particularly the beguiled so this almost seems like after dirty harry and the that completely made him into uh, absolute superstar and he was the ultimate conservative vigilante i just shoot anyone who gets in my way kind mm. of character that high plains drifter was like the reaction you know okay this is what you want this is what you get um, and this is also what happens, I think, where you have the one time period in Hollywood history where the directors were put completely in charge of the product, where the money men had admitted they didn't have a clue what was going on with the 60s. So they were basically putting it in the hands of the directors for, you know, until Spielberg, really. Mm-hmm. And all of those directors were male. And they still, frankly, had the same values as their forebears in Hollywood, i.e. they didn't like women. Mm, yeah. So all the stories were either, I hate women, I fear women, or I hate and fear women. <laughs> and, you know, you know and, and where, you know, Martin Scorsese, who admitted that he didn't really know anything about women, and Ellen Burstyn had to kind of cajole him into making Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore you know, is seen as the, probably the great liberal figure, you know, the, despite the fact that there are no really fully developed female characters that he did in the 70s. Mm. So this is what you get when you, when you put the lunatics in charge of the asylum. <laughs> yeah, you put the lunatics and rapists in charge of the asylum. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, quite literally, and, and, and therefore <laughs> that's, the films are, are going to reflect that. So... um. Yeah, so in in terms of 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 High Plains Drifter, I'll say there's some great visuals in it. You mentioned the uh the the start and end, so it's a it's a kind of as you say, the he comes into town, he leaves town. It's a it's a it's a forward and a reverse kind of shot of that. This kind of very heat haze, and you're not alone in in liking that shot. He used exactly the same yeah. shot in in Pale Rider, uh as he as he comes into and leaves town, and it, it as it is as you say a virtual remake. He plays a character whose only name is the preacher. Mm. And he comes into town for revenge. So yeah, if you know, if it, if it ain't broke, just keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, something I do want to flag up because I do think because you know we've just given it a bit of a savaging, and you might be well be sitting listening, thinking, well, why do they like this movie? Um, for it, considering it's his second film, it's directed so brilliantly, yeah, uh, and it, it's visually like a masterpiece. And there's. Uh, particularly the end where basically, you know, the chickens come home to roost and he gets his revenge on the bad guys. All these incredible shots of him set in darkness against a backdrop of fire where he literally is, you know, the devil has come to, you know, to to take his revenge. And um, 
one of the things it's very dependent on, and obviously the two female stars, it's impossible to make any judgment on how good they are when they their characters are appalling. But he has surrounded himself with an incredible repertory company of male supporting actors who all do a great job of being horrible, pathetic, weak, useless, cowardly, and occasionally bullying men. And I do want to particularly big up um, Jeffrey Lewis, who plays the main bad guy, uh, Stacy, and Anthony James, who plays one of the bad guys, Cole. And in so many Westerns, the bad guy, or at least one of the bad guys, is a charismatic figure. You know, he's a Lee Marvin type. He's a Jack Palance type. This group of, of ne'er-do-wells are hideous. They're ugly and stupid and nasty, and they have the perfect faces to be horrible creeps that you know immediately that you see them on screen. They're the bad guys. I'm here to hate them. Clint Eastwood is here to kill them. And you just know that from the first shot of them. And Anthony James is one of those people. He'll never loom large in uh, film history, but I just remember him from being the bad guy in so many movies and TV shows in that time. And he's one of those bad guys, rather than the guy who scares you or looks like a heavy or whatever. He's the guy that looks weak and pathetic and a creep. And um, he does such a fantastic job of it. Uh, <laughs> Shout out to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they're great bad guys, I think. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd like to talk about um, Billy Curtis, who plays Mordecai, who's the little person. So uh, he, I mean, he appeared in, in a lot of things. Of course, he was in Wizard of Oz. I mean, he'd be good for a long, long time. So, of course, he was one of the kind of unnamed munchkins. He wasn't one of the, the three main munchkins. Um, but in, I think it was 1938, he was the star of an all-little person western called The Terror of Tiny Town. Oh, ouch. Can you imagine? Oh. Can you imagine? But he was the he was the hero of that film. I've never I've never seen it. The only reason I know it is um I had this I had this film book when I was young called The Worst Films Ever Made and it oh, was wow. it was listed in that book. Wow. Um and they had pictures and everything and, and literally the whole time there is not a kind of full size person in that film. It's wow. all little people. So oh. I mean, inclusion. why? Well, it's great inclusion with the casting. Uh, why, not... why was it made? I can't imagine it, it, it did Exploitation. big business. Exploitation. I can't believe I said that, but I can't imagine it did big business. But uh, yeah, yeah <laughs> it is nothing but, but exploitation. Um, and yeah, you've got to think, I mean, we've, we've, we've done a film in this series called Freaks, mm. again, featuring uh, disabled performers. You've got, you got to wonder what kind of hell life Mm. was going on for, for disabled entertainers in those days. Well, that's quite a segue because I think um, I ran through the plot very quickly, but I just have to mention probably the three things. Yeah, three that I think this make this quite a unique Western. Um, first of all, um, there is a whole thing about how he insists on he's going to train these townsfolk to, to fight back, except... This is, of course, an idea completely pinched from Seven Samurai and mm. Magnificent Seven. But this is not the same thing at all. Clint Eastwood's character knows full well that they're incapable of defending themselves. It wouldn't matter how he teach, taught them or trained them. He's doing it to humiliate them um, and to make sure that they are further humiliated on the, on the crucial night. And um, it's, it's, again, the weirdness of this movie that, you know, this character would do this um nevertheless whether they deserve it or not um second thing is he insists when the, the 
the bad guys are coming into town that everybody paints literally paints the town red yeah um uh, which is quite an extraordinary visual set piece and then as a added extra um with the sign that says welcome to lagos he he makes it basically say welcome to hell um and it's just the, and that's what they see as they they come into town and of course they're hoodwinked into wow this town are going to fight back we'll be ready for them and the town of course make you know they're terrible they're yeah. useless and they're they're rounded up and beaten really soon and um and then clint pretty much takes them out one by one mm. using various things like bullwhips and dynamite and all sorts yeah um it's it's a very strange film and i think one of the things about it is that makes it so strange is that on the one hand, it's a really narcissistic and nasty kind of star vehicle by the director's star. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's a genuinely quite experimental film which pushes back the envelope of what a Western could look like. And um, the two things kind of jar both, I don't know, they sort of jar uh, with each other. But it's a film that once you've seen it, you never quite forget it. Yeah. But I, I, I think that's true, and that that um, that vision, that visual of the red town. Before I watched this, actually, I watched it relatively recently. I watched a few Clint Eastwood ones, probably about a year ago, because I kept thinking, which one is it where the town gets painted red? Because <laughs> you know, a lot of his films do have that kind of similar, yeah, Pale similar Rider, view, Joe Kidd, yeah, etc. Outlaw Josie Wales, Outlaw Josie Wales, yeah. all those, all those kind of things, and. Yeah. You know, it's only with Unforgiven, I guess, in '92, where he kind of he makes one of the definitive yeah. late late redefines westerns. It. Redefines it. Absolutely redefines it. And that that notion of forgive and forget, which is is a theme mm. of uh, of this film, also kind of comes full circle uh, there. So, um, yeah, he's made some he's made some great films. I'm not sure this is one of them. Fair enough. But I do think that the beguiled. Is and it wasn't one he directed, but it was one he starred in. And maybe it's a good time to move on to that one. Let's move on to The Beguiled. So, so The Beguiled is a 1971 uh, Civil War drama, I guess you'd call it, uh, directed by uh, Don Siegel. The uh, cinematographer is Bruce Surtees and does a great job on this film. It stars Clint Eastwood as John McBurney, Geraldine Page as Martha, the headmistress, Elizabeth Hartman as Edwina, the virginal teacher. May Mercer as Hallie, the servant. Pamelyn Ferdin as Amy, the youngest girl. And Joanne Harris as Carol, who I've called the slutty one. Um, <laughs> and I've, <laughs> I've described these women because it is, it is, a, it is a women-heavy movie. Uh, Clint Eastwood really is the only kind of character, male character with dialogue. So just in case you're getting the names all mixed up, there's just a little bit of description there to help you. So Gary, uh, mm. what happens in this film? The action takes place almost entirely in an all-girls school in Mississippi in 1863 during the US Civil War. Clint is a wounded Union soldier, John McBurney, who is discovered by 12-year-old pupil Amy as she is picking mushrooms in the woods outside the school. At first, headmistress Miss Martha Farnsworth wants to turn him over to Confederate soldiers, but she agrees to let him recuperate from his wounds first. However, this benevolent decision starts to spread mayhem as teacher Edwina begins to fall in love with McBurney, while 17-year-old pupil Carol wants to seduce him. McBurney has a keen understanding that he he looks like a young Clint Eastwood and (laughs) manipulates every woman and girl in the school in order to persuade them, 
deprived as they have been for years of a masculine presence, to not turn him over to the rebels. McBurney is selfish, cowardly, ignoble, and in 21st century parlance, a player. But McBurney is playing with forces that he can't control. After charming slave Hallie and school mom Martha into wanting to shag him, and even becoming a convincing father figure for Amy and her pet tortoise, Carol spies Edwina coming out of her shell and snogging Clint in the garden. She takes rejection badly and ties a blue ribbon to the old oak tree to signal to Confederate soldiers that there is a damn Yankee in the school. To her dismay, Martha lies to the soldiers to save McBurney. And we also learn in flashback that Martha had an incestuous relationship with her own brother before his death. This volatile mix of sexual repression, power games and total perviness comes to a head that night when Martha tries and fails to seduce McBurney. Carol blackmails McBurney into sleeping with her. Edwina catches them at it and beats Clint with a candlestick until he slips and falls down the stairs, shattering his leg. Martha, who is also not too impressed by McBurney's choice of sex kitten, announces that the only way McBurney will survive gangrene is if they amputate his leg. They're not surgeons. <laughs> Lindsay, what's wrong with this picture? I think just even in that, that first <laughs> half of the plot, you know, we've got incest, we've got a kind of very female-led uh, and, and female-dominated film. We've got, an, as you say, a really, really different character for Clint Eastwood. So he's a cowardly liar. He's certainly a deserter, it seems yeah. to be. He's he's powerless. We see a lot of his kind of army life in, in flashback. And he's telling these uh, girls and women very heroic stories. But what we are seeing in, in the flashbacks is the truth. And it's not very heroic. You know, he's kind of shooting people from bushes at no risk to himself. And that's how he gets injured. That's how he mm-hmm. ends up injured and, yep. and where Amy um, finds him. Um, and right from the start, it's about how he manipulates women, as you say. So Amy is the little girl who finds him, the one who's, who's, who's um, collecting mushrooms. She's 12 in the film, and the actress was 12 at the time. But to be honest, she looks young, and she could be 10. Mm. He kisses her full on the mouth. Yes. Full on the mouth. A sexual kiss. This is kind of right from the start. And this is to keep her quiet when they're hiding from the uh, rebel soldiers, who, if they find him, they will kind of take him off to prison where he will surely die. Yeah. Um, So right from the start, there's this kind of weird awareness that he's got of his sexual power over women and girls. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and so he pretends to be what each of them needs. So he's this first crush <laughs> for Amy. You know, he's 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 very yeah. adept at kind of being whatever, whatever the they women need. want him to be. Yeah. So he's a first crush for Amy. He's this romantic escape for Edwina, the virginal teacher who, you know, this is this is her only chance probably mm. of kind of sex and marriage. Uh, he's a handy lover for Carol, the, the slutty one, mm. uh, who, who is very kind of aware. Precocious. Precocious and, yeah, yeah, and aware of, of her own kind of sexual power. He's he presents himself as a pacifist to Martha, the head, yeah. headmistress, which is a lie. He yeah. says he was a Quaker, that he was involved in the kind of medical corps. We know from his flashbacks that's not true. He was shooting people left and right. Um, so he presents himself. He thinks that's what she wants to hear, and then later on it became it becomes clear she's looking for a lover as well. So whatever he'll be that he'll be that. And then you know he's presenting himself as this Yankee. I called Hallie the servant. 
she's a, she's a slave. She's a slave. She's she's a, a a black woman played obviously by a black actress, and she's a slave. And so he presents himself as a kind of the Yankee savior of all slaves everywhere. He presents himself as this noble thing. We know that's not true. She sees through it immediately. Yes, immediately. Um, and all the women, I guess, eventually see through him. But 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 she's she's the first. Yeah, I I think yeah, there's definitely a thing about Hallie. I think those scenes are extraordinary between him and her, and there's not enough of them mm. um, because because it is so despicable that he's literally playing with the idea of slavery and man- mm. in order to manipulate her because she can plainly see through him, but that doesn't mean they don't smolder together. She's she's kind of looking at him, going, "You are a player. You are an arsehole. You must think I'm an idiot if I'm buying that." But on the other hand, she's looking at him like, "Yeah, but you're pretty." <laughs> um, and um, so uh, I, I think those they, yeah, the chemistry in those scenes. But I do, I do have to say that you know, my one single thing, favourite thing about this film, and that is Geraldine Page. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. There are readings of this film, and I, I, I sort of saw them. I had a little bit of a look round at some reviews and saw things like you know letterboxed and stuff like that. People who you know see this film as a misogynist film, um, that it's stereotyping women, that you know it was attack by Clint Eastwood and Don Siegel on women and etc. And it's kind of like, apart from like, firstly the the plot is, firstly the character of John McBurney is so is presented to the audience as pathetic and manipulative and cowardly and dishonest. And secondly, he the only time he has any power in the entire film is when he manages to get hold of a gun. Yeah. Um, and then he has power over the women. Otherwise, he's completely powerless from beginning to end. Um, and thirdly, you know, the outcome of the film is so not him winning that, I, you know, I, it's hard for me to see it that way. But particularly the strongest thing is Geraldine Page and her incredible scene-stealing performance where she manages to be an uptight school mom, a total pervert who's had sex with her brother, um, a lusty woman yeah. who wants to just shag him. Um, a revenge taker. A revenge taker and an extraordinarily manipulated, per- manipulative yeah. person herself. And a, a leader, a leader with and real authority. Leader. Yeah. And she... Uh, she manages with facial because the dialogue does some of it, but it's mainly her face. Yeah, uh, she's incredible. In I this thought film. she was amazing, and I was thinking, what else have I seen her in? And turns out, not very much. No. to be honest. I mean, she no. was in Sweet Bird of Youth on stage and in the the film with um, Paul Newman. Mm. I'm not sure if I've if I've seen that. I, I looked up the plot I and I thought, well, that's kind of familiar. That. But a lot no. of Tennessee Williams plays do sound they are the same. <laughs> the same. Yeah. Um, and and she won an Oscar in 1986 for a film called The Road to Bountiful. Wow. Which, me neither. Really? Never heard of it. Uh, certainly never seen it. Um, but she was blacklisted for a while, actually. Um, she? Yeah, she was. Uh, she um, trained under a German actress. She, she trained mm. as, a, as mm. an actress under, under a German actress called Uta Hagen, who mm. was herself blacklisted because she was an activist who used to do a lot of stuff with Paul Robeson. So she was blacklisted. Right. People who trained under her were also blacklisted. Wow. So I don't know Geraldine Page's own uh, politics. Presumably, you know, she was she was into the whole Uta Hagen approach, um, but she she was blacklisted. So wow. that affected her film uh, film career. Um, 
but I really haven't seen her in very much. And I'm kind no. of thinking, I should really dig out some of her other films because, yeah. as you say, she's incredible in this. Yeah, and uh, and I do think, you know, I, I do have a sort of vague memory and unfortunately is a vague memory of seeing her doing character parts, again, mm. supporting parts, you know, uh, around the 70s and 80s. And it does explain a lot why... She, you know, you don't see a, a young Geraldine Page in films if she was blacklisted. And this is, again, just how much it impacted incredibly talented people. Um, but it's, you know, it, it for me, it's a the kind of performance that should have been nominated or even won Oscars. But the context was very simple. The Beguiled bombed. Really? Did it, it bombed. It was it, it like took less than a million dollars on it you know i mean it was really bad mm. um critics most of them savaged it um because it was basically you know a whole set of taboos um that it was playing with that was seen as tasteless and and kind of exploitation once yeah. again you know and and it's kind of like you know most of the critics were a bit snooty by that stuff about that stuff um, and it didn't have that breakout quality that, say, Straw Dogs or A Clockwork Orange had, where people went to see it because it was controversial. Um, so, you know, there's no way that the Academy are going to give any props to her for mm. that, um, which is a real shame. I also, also, 1971, you know, it was up against, it was just such an incredible year for film, but one of the biggest things it was up against was Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, what chance did it have? And it's yeah, and I think we were we were talking. The reason we wanted to do both these films mm. together, mm. *High Plains Drifter* and *The Beguiled*, is is just I think you you had a great phrase for it. Kind of how they how they talk to each other, or the conversation that they have with each other, and how how they counterpoint and counteract each other. Yeah, so instead of being this kind of silent hero that kind of lays everything to waste, as he is in *High Plains Drifter*, here Clint Eastwood talks and talks and talks and he talks too much yeah so yeah. he talks his way into these women kind of saving him and not immediately handing him over to uh the the, the rebel uh troops yeah but the more he talks the more he ties himself in knots the yes. more he tries to be everything all things to all people. all things to, to all women yeah and, all uh, things to all women particularly the more he's tripping up because so in, in High Plains Drifter, he is what he is and he doesn't change and he is this unchanging thing. He changes too much in this in yeah. this film. Yeah. Um just trying to kind of save his own neck. Yeah. And I think I think there is something there. I I wrote this down when I when I watched it. Mm. Um The reason it's it's unusual for me is that women know very well what men are capable of, but men don't fully understand what women are capable of. <laughs> and that's so in this film, he 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 charms, he manipulates, and he thinks that this makes him impregnable because he does not know the depths that women will will stoop to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, there is a quote. I think it's from um, the bio, a biography written of Clint Eastwood, um, and um, it was from Don Siegel, um, who basically sort of confirmed, if I can find it, the exact quote. Um, the film was based around, in inverted commas, the basic desire of women to castrate men. <laughs> I mean, then again, we're back to the 70s, aren't we? Yep. That, that, fear, that fear and, and loathing of... Fear of, and loathing of women. Yeah. And I think you can't see somebody getting their leg amputated and not immediately think castration. And I think yeah. one of the things that I, 
I really like about this film, and other people might not like it because of that, is that the symbolism is very overt. It's very yeah. kind of in your face. So when when he first um, gets taken to the school by, by Amy, and he's slightly injured at the start, ends up very injured, of course, by the end. Well, very injured. To the, to the nth degree at the yeah, end. Yeah. Um, but when he first approaches the school, there's a there's a little crow that Amy, the young girl who collects the mushrooms, has been keeping as a pet. So this crow is kind of tied by one leg to the uh, to the railing. At the end, whether they haven't fed this crow or whatever, but obviously the crow represents John McBurney. At the end, the crow is lying dead, hung by one leg, <laughs> because they they've totally neglected it. So it's 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 the very, subtle imagery of Don Siegel. Exactly, <laughs> it's it's very it's very on the nose. Yeah, and I love it. I and love I, it for that. I think I I just I kind of I think it fits the film really well because there is a lot of. I was going to say there is a lot of subtlety in this film. I'm not sure there is a there's lot of subtlety n- in the film. I don't think there's any subtlety And that's in why film. I can call people like the virginal teacher or the slutty yeah. one because that's kind of who they are. Yeah. But but somehow these actresses kind of make it real. And yeah, Clint Eastwood's performance too, I think, is excellent. The only time his performance falters for me is he wakes up and realises that his leg's been amputated and he's kind of mildly miffed by that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe he could do anger, but can't do fear and distress. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I, I think uh, there's some little things that I did want to mention. Um, the film was filmed and at an estate near Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, and it, the house itself was actually a slave plantation. Mm. Um, there's a... Um, I think there's an image at one point um, of... Uh, two of the women supporting Clint Eastwood while he's, you know, lying injured. And it's also echoed in a painting on the wall, yeah. uh, which is Van der Vaden's Pieta, uh, which is a religious um, yeah. iconic picture uh, of Jesus uh, dying. Yeah, so this because this is a kind of religious household, isn't yeah. it? And, and and Martha's teaching, despite her enthusiastic bonking of her brother over, it seems, <laughs> many know. a month, she is she is a religious person, and this is why he presents himself as a as a pacifist first. So again, that's part of that 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 religious um, symmetry and and symbolism that is very on the nose. Yeah, it's meant to be on the nose because it's it's a painting in Martha's bedroom, so she is making that connection. Yeah, while she's having, I think while she's having a sex dream about him I think and so. I think, Edwina, the virginal one. So that yeah, exactly. So there is you know something going on for her, not just about her brother um but also uh, about jesus uh, <laughs> as a sort of sexual fantasy figure and somehow that ties in with clint and it's kind of like wow you're a scary lady yeah um it I've got, you'll love this um it was it bombed uh, everywhere uh, was pretty much ignored for years everywhere except france <laughs> <laughs> listeners so often we come to the conclusion that the French are just weird when it comes to film and pretty much, you know, any film we think is weird, the French think are just truly wonderful. Absolutely. I've got a, a Ooh, question yeah. for you. Is mm, that mm, all right? Yeah. Is it a horror film? I, I, that is such a great question. Yes. I think it is a horror film and I think one of the reasons it bombed is because the studio didn't quite know what it had. Yeah. And actually, uh, the posters, interestingly enough, brought me on to another point. I want to yeah, just so your questions are so great, Lisa. <laughs> is that um, the original poster, they, they looked at 
the fact that they their tough guy was you know um completely emasculated in this film and thought jesus well we can't put this on the poster um so they they have a picture of him holding a gun <laughs> and the women kind of like in the corner or looking sort of distressed yeah and it makes him look like he's an action hero rescuing them <laughs> as opposed to there's one shot of him with a gun where he's basically yeah. hiding from someone and trying to shoot them you know yeah. it, it, it's kind of like you sold somebody so you know you yes. sold your male you know public something and yeah. they turned up and of yeah. course they got the opposite yeah. and i think if they marketed it as like a horror movie um you know, because it's a dry run for misery, isn't it? Oh my God! I was that, your questions are so good because I was I was coming onto that. It's it really reminded me of Black Narcissus, Powell and Pressburger film set in a, a convent in the Himalayas, where women's sexual repression sends them mad. And it's only because that's a British film from the fifties that you know they don't go kind of homic- homicidally maniac. <laughs> they just well, one does. <laughs> That's true. She does actually. Yeah. yeah. But anyway. Yeah. No. But you're right. <laughs> um. And it, it, it's all, so. I wonder if it was influenced by that. Do you think Don Siegel is a Powell and Pressburger fan? I. It's. It. You know. When George Romero is. So maybe. I don't know. You know. And that shocked me completely. I don't know. Um. But I tell you what. It remind me of. You're absolutely right. The theme mm. is the same as the Black Narcissus. So you. You really could do, sort of a weird link between Black Narcissus, the beguiled, and misery. Yeah. And that's just weird as hell um but common theme being men don't understand what women are capable of to yeah and oh man trapped yeah um but anyway um (laughs) that's a that's an interesting dual perspective yeah there you go you know i'm seeing it as oh no they've got me trapped and you're seeing it as yeah you don't know what we're capable of um whatever happened to baby jane yeah um and not because there's any similarity with the story or anything like that but but that sense of absolute hysteria yeah, absolute unashamed hysteria. Um, there is no good taste going on here. There is no restraint. We realise the grotesque yes. story and we're going all out. And if you don't get it, you don't get it. And um, that was a massive hit, of course. Um, and, and the Bigard, wrong time, wrong place, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Wrong star, maybe. 1962 is not 1971. No, no. We can't really. I mean, we should mention uh, that the Beguiled was remade in 2017 with yeah, Nicole absolutely. Kidman as as the Geraldine Page part and Colin Farrell as the Clint Eastwood part. I remember seeing it and liking it. I don't remember much about it except no, it wasn't as good. No, it's a strange one. Um, I'm a big Sofia Coppola fan. And I think it may be the biggest misstep in her filmmaking career. It's one of those films that nobody wanted to, you know, there was no great reason to remake it. It's not a huge cult film that, you know, so there wasn't a great commercial reason to make it. Um, And I, I think Kirsten Dunst is also, is she playing the Edwina character? I think, is that right? Um, And it basically... What she seemed to do with it and why I don't have a great memory. I remember watching it thinking, ah, oh, this is okay, and then nothing much else. And it's because she admitted she tried to tell it all from the female perspective and and kind of ease out the political incorrectness. And it's kind of like, this is a film based on political yeah, incorrectness. This is a story based on political incorrectness. It's, it's nothing you can do about it. And it's kind of already from the female perspective. Yeah, but that's there's that still that little controversy. Oh, you know, the female characters were stereotypes and archetypes, and rather than real people. Um, and you know, but I, but Nick Al Kidman, I'm sorry, ain't no Geraldine Page, and no. and 
Uh, Kirsten Dunst is is miscast because she's way too pretty. Yeah. Um, Colin Farrell is miscast because even though he's a great actor and and handsome, he doesn't carry the threat that Clint Eastwood yeah. carries. Yeah, he's yeah. not slimy enough. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think in every way it's just slightly worse. And when you have slightly worse multiplied by slightly worse multiplied by slightly worse, in the end, The Beguiled 1971 is a great film. The Beguiled 2017. Not so good. However, um, the 2017 version made a profit. It was a moderate hit, <laughs> strangely. Just goes to show, you know, <laughs> unless you're in France. Well, <laughs> Tell us more about the plot. Oh, yeah. Okay, right. So, um, wow, where had I got to? Oh, yes. Okay, so when McBurney wakes to find that while his hosts had nothing against his left leg, now, unfortunately, neither does he. He goes ballistic. <laughs> <laughs> he goes ballistic or, or mildly miffed, as Lindsay would have it. Uh, within a few hours, he has got hold of a gun and some incriminating letters that Martha kept from her brother and has essentially taken the whole school hostage. In a drunken rage, he tells the girls about their headmistress's past indiscretions and even hurls Amy's beloved tortoise to the ground, killing it. Big mistake. Amazingly, Edwina chooses Clint over Sesterhood, goes to his room, confesses her love and spends the night dreaming of escape and marriage to her with her one-legged dreamboat. <laughs> However, this has given the rest of the women time to plan their escape. It takes one angry little girl, though, to plot the perfect re revenge. She goes out to pick mushrooms. She knows exactly which ones to pick. Lindsay, yeah. what's, <laughs> we've, we've actually done what a, a lot of what's good about yeah. this picture, but... Well, I, th I think I think what's good is that, yes, these women have a gun. Yes, you know, he's at their mercy with a broken leg. They can wait till he's asleep. They can string him up. They don't do that. It's it's a very, very women-focused revenge that they take. Mm. So these mushrooms, you know, you got him. We're not, I don't think we're really spoiling anything to say by these mushrooms, uh, you know, are, are his demise. And Amy, the little girl at the start who's rescued him, who was picking mushrooms, who he kisses full on the lips, even though she's a little girl, do not, you know, do not break her heart, but also do not mess with this pet, who's yeah. called Randolph, who's the other significant yeah. male presence in this yes, film. Yes, absolutely. Do not, <laughs> it's true. Do not take a little girl's pet away from her and kill her because otherwise there's going to be revenge done. And so that notion of poison as mm. an essentially kind of a women's tool mm. a women's kind mm. of method mm. uh, yeah. of, of of killing and it's it's echoed at the end so we see in long shot um and we we hear what's going on so we see a group of women in long shot and we hear what's going on and it's kind of put your needle through and and, and turn it under and it's clearly a lesson in in, in stitching because all the, this is kind of like a, a finishing school they've had lessons in deportment and the correct kind of napkin to use and how you host a party all completely useless skills in the middle of the Civil War because even at the end of the film, the Union soldiers are coming and this is not going to be pleasant mm. for these young women and girls at all. Yeah, so yeah, we hear yeah. at this last scene, we hear the stitching and you're doing this and it's another kind of lesson for them. And what they're stitching, of course, is Clint's body bag. Yeah, and it's, it's astonishing. It's this, I, I think it's, it's totally kind of a bravura ending. Yeah, and just me too. these kind of women-focused skills, these feminine skills that these girls have learned, some of them are going to come in useful. Absolutely. I, I can't believe, again, I did a bit of reading around reviews and people's opinions of it, and they're saying, oh, it would have been a good film if it had a good ending. And I was just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what did you ending. want to happen? <laughs> uh, it's absolutely spectacular ending. And um, I've watched, I, I think both of us have, but I've watched a lot of films recently that have awkward dinner party scenes. <laughs> yeah. And I think, 
the last dinner party in the Beguiled just beats out Feston <laughs> as the greatest awkward dinner party ever put on screen. It's it's just and one of the things I think is most interesting about this film uh, is it's about the subjectivity. It, it, you know, choices are made about who are you looking at this? Whose perspective are you looking at this from? Whose viewpoint are you looking at this from? And we, there's another way to do this whole end. Flint and Edwina go upstairs and then the next thing we're at the dinner party. Yeah. And then what happens next is the twist. Yeah. Right? No. We, We are given the women's perspective. Yeah. We know exactly what is being planned and we're kind of encouraged to go, yay. Yeah. And maybe even laugh. Yeah. Maybe even laugh at how easily outwitted he is by a 12-year-old. And uh, for that, to me, is the perspective that we're yeah. looking at it from. And Does he deserve it? Well, we all, this kind of, I really like these kind of discussions between us because there's, for me, there's um, cinematic, do they deserve it? And yeah. real life, do they deserve <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah. I'm a pacifistic kind of guy. I don't <laughs> necessarily think people should be killed for being bad people. Um, um, however, there's cinematic yeah. um, justice and... Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think he does. I, I, I think. And <laughs> actually, I'm saying that because I think it's really terrible that he kills her pet. <laughs> I think, you know, <laughs> in a drunken rage. Yeah. And you know, and that you let this guy away with having a gun. Um, you know, and what devastation is he going to cause? Because he's a cowardly, yeah. horrible, completely immoral man. Yeah. Uh, and he's obviously conning the hell out of Edwina. Um. There's no way he's going to commit to her. So, yeah. <laughs> I think um, I think I think I'm with you. Of course, you know, I would never want to see anything like that happen in in in, in real life. Uh, never. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you pause there. I think we're both thinking of someone, but you know. <laughs> no, no. Of course, I would never want to see anything like that happen in real life. But cinematically, mm. his his character deserves it. The film needs it. And um, I've got one more question for you. Actually, it sounds mm. like we're 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 um, mm. winding winding mm-hmm. up, winding down. But mm. we see a flashback where Hallie, the slave, yes, is being approached by the brother in the barn. Oh, to, to yeah. presumably be raped, and she's holding up like some kind of pitchfork. Now, the story about the brother is that he disappeared. He went off, and he did, never came mm. back. Did Hallie kill him? That's so open ended, isn't it? And you know what? That I'd never thought about that before, and. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I, I like that. I think that ties everything up in a, in um, you know, men do not know what women are capable yeah. of kind of way. Um, yeah, I but I do think her performance. Um, I, um oh, I've forgotten the name of the actress. She's so good because she's got so little screen time to make an impression. Yeah, um, and she's fabulous. Her name is Mae Mercer. Wow, May Mercer. And of course, yeah, I'd, we'd love to read you a list of credits of <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the amazing amount of par- parts this youngish black woman got uh, in the early 70s. Guess what? There yeah, isn't one. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but there we go. Um, she she is fabulous in this movie. Um, so, shall we try and... Um, let's go back to High Plains Drifter. Um, how many bullwhips do you give it for weirdness and how many bullwhips do you give it for quality? I give it eight bullwhips for weirdness and uh, you know what it, it is a good film it is worth seeing the 70s 
leave a, leave a, a bad lamp. taste in my mouth. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to give it a six for quality because, and I'm taking off two points for the rape. Yeah, and I, um, yeah, I got no argument with that. I give it um, eight bull whips for weird, and uh, I'm going to give it eight bull whips um, for quality. And um, uh, this is not to deny what Lindsay just said. Uh, I do think it's an extraordinary film, and and it would be a nine or a ten if if those scenes weren't in it. So, and how many tortoises for weirdness <laughs> to be. and to quality be. do you give the big, the big old? Uh, for quality, it's a nine. For weirdness, it's an eight. I think I would, I would concur. I think it's, a, a, I think it's, it's a great film. It, yeah, it really is a great film. And for me, a better film than than How yes, Drifter. Hundred percent agree. A, a much more interesting kind of character. A much more interesting story. Much more women-focused, which I'm always going to like, and it's always going to get extra points for that. So, yeah, nine for quality and eight for weird, because to see Clint Eastwood in the same year as Dirty Harry being this kind of craven, mm. cowardly, manipulative, powerless person is incredible. Yeah, and, you know, the fact that it needed Dirty Harry to come... I mean, that would have... I, I think if Dirty Harry had, didn't exist, it might have killed his career right there and <laughs> yeah. then. So... um. I think that's been a really interesting episode and I hope you guys do too. Um, both films uh, I would recommend, but The Beguiled in particular. Um, I'm uh, Gary and um, I'm looking forward to speaking to you next time. Till next time. What's Wrong With This Picture is brought to you by Lindsay McCulloch and Gary Mulholland and is recorded by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. Music composed and performed by Russ Kevin.